Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Starting a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL, some of you have seen me on Instagram, and some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life, former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler, Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Rob Mahoney of The Ringer, and a lot of fun stuff on this. We talk about the title picture in the early going, what's going on in Portland and Indiana, Warrior Sons, and a whole lot more. Conversation runs a little bit less than an hour. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, anytime. Beforehand, you, you, you're like, hey, is there anything you want to talk about? And I, we said that yesterday when we were kind of winding this up. And overnight, I thought about it. I thought about it that night and I thought about this morning. And where I want to start is this concept that I've been working on over the last couple of days, which is it feels to me like if you want to talk about it from a title perspective, but even just kind of broader, like hierarchically in the league, things feel really wide open right now. And what I'm having trouble assessing and if it feels wide open, that's that's in some ways it's a factual statement, in some ways it's not. It's more also about how it feels. But what I'm grappling with right now is is it actually open? Or is this something like maybe 2014-15, where the Warriors had they were having this really good season and nobody was really sure whether to take them seriously as a title team. And they were, you know, they were doing better. I mean, Utah this year is pretty close, and and but then they just won the title. And I, first of all, that team could be the Warriors. It could also be someone else. But I, I'm still grappling with the possibility that it is wide open or in hindsight will be like, oh, no, obviously it was this. Yeah, I think the reason it feels open to the extent that it does is mostly to do with the Eastern Conference, right? Yeah. Like, I think the whatever you thought of the Lakers coming into the season, their regression toward the rest of the pack, the the playoff bubble teams, however low you want to go on them, I think that void has been filled pretty cleanly and easily by the Warriors and the Suns just being better than pretty much everybody else. And so to the extent that there's any discussion to be had about the West, I think we saw it play out over these matchups between Phoenix and Golden State in these last couple weeks which, I mean, great regular season basketball, great to see two teams like that go at each other in such uh, quick succession. And we saw this, that the Suns could really measure up defensively in that match. I mean, that they could slow down 
a lot of what the Warriors do well. So that's exciting as a potential, you know, whether the seeding breaks as a conference finals or a, or a second round or whatever it is, that's going to be a really fun playoff matchup. I feel pretty confident at this stage that injuries allowed and understood that things can happen. Those feel like pretty definitively the two best teams in the West. But in the East, there's some, you know, injuries on Milwaukee's part. There's some uncertainty on Brooklyn's part. And all of a sudden you get into a much wider conversation about, is there a window here for Chicago or Miami or some or a, a healthy Philadelphia team if Joel Embiid finally gets rolling? There's just a lot of opportunity on that side of things where coming in, I think a lot of us were talking about the Nets as, as kind of a prohibitive favorite if all their guys were available, Kyrie Irving included, and even without him, probably still the favorite to win the title. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a very fair way of putting it. And one stat kind of on that front that I've been, this, this has come up with, I can't remember where this was recently where I was talking about this, but so when Kevin Durant has been on the floor, and so obviously no Kyrie and the stagger and everything else like that, the Nets are outscoring opponents by 6.2 points per possessions. When the Sixers have Joel Embiid, they're plus eight. Yeah. And but the question there are two questions that will persist with the Sixers until they, you know, actually do something, which is one, will they be will they have their key guys available? And two, like will are they able to handle the the changes that happen in the playoffs? You know, more cogent opponent strategies, you know, taking taking advantage of your unusual strengths and weaknesses. But there is a really interesting lingering thing there for me, which is the Sixers don't have the same kind of weaknesses now. I mean, they're they have less talent without Ben Simmons and replacing him with nothing because he's still there. But you don't defend Tyrese Maxey and Seth Curry and Tobias Harris the same way that you defend Ben Simmons in the half court. And yes, Simmons made them a better defensive team, and I think that's been an underappreciated part of his absence is that the Sixers aren't looking quite the same, even if they've been pretty good when Joel's been out there. But it's a really, to me, it's it's a, the, the matter of trust is always so challenging because like with the Sixers, we have all of this baggage for them as a playoff team and all the times, whether it was injuries or, or I mean, like they took, they gave the, the Raptors the hardest series of anybody. Now, part of that's because, because of the injuries that happened to the Warriors, but like that, so should, should we have the baggage for them that we do, but we do. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's hard not to, and some of it is some of it is very well earned, even within this season. You know, yeah. provided that Joel Embiid is coming back from his own bout with COVID, and that's a team that's been hit particularly hard. And that's probably something we should talk about too, as we as we canvass the league in terms of certainty and openness. Is I mean, there is there are a lot of teams with three and four guys out right now, and what is that going to mean in terms of breaking up their momentum of their season and their attempts to build habits and whatnot? But as we zero in on the Sixers, even when you watch Joel Embiid. There's a lot of things he does on the court that defy explanation, and I don't mean that in a way that his talent is so overwhelming, though it is. I mean, he just makes some really weird choices sometimes when he's like, when he when he's going to pass out of a double team versus when he doesn't. When he's going to take an open three-pointer and when he doesn't. And so when you see players like that, especially superstars who, you know, as the Sixers get into the playoffs, he's just going to be force-fed possessions because that's their best avenue. You get a little nervous about what that could mean against varied coverages, really intelligent, really keyed in defenses, it becomes a different kind of proposition. And so I think you're absolutely right. The the question of how you solve the Sixers 
is dramatically different without Ben Simmons on the floor. But they do still have limitations. There are still, For sure. you know, Seth Curry's size and the limitations in terms of what he can create off the dribble. Tobias Harris off the bounce is always kind of a mixed bag, depending on what the matchup looks like. And frankly, like whether he's just kind of on in his mid-range game or not changes the, the complexion of that matchup. But this is a team that's like been bordering on top five offense all season so far, and they really haven't had a full strength, full speed and bead for that much of the time. Right. And there's also the factor that I brought up how I don't trust their defense as much that the intended starting and closing fives for the Sixers don't have as many, you know, even above average defenders for their position. And so you could see that being a a different point of failure for Philly than it was in the last in the last couple of years. So I'm I'm really interested in that. And we're also starting to get the preliminary indications, which we kind of always knew was going to be the case, that there is going to be some seeding wonkiness. I mean, I'm thinking for that of Miami, where Bam's now unfortunately going to be out for a while. And inevitably, especially in a year where there's so many competitive teams, you're going to have some of that where like the third or fourth best team is the fifth or sixth seed. Like that's that's the just the nature of things. And I th- you know that with with the Bucks all their guys being hurt in the early going it looks like it could potentially be them but I think they're already you know barring future injuries which could absolutely happen I think they're lining up as the strongest regular season team in the East which is not a surprise when you consider their talent and, and everything else but yeah like Miami and all this kind of stuff and so will that lead to a little bit of gamesmanship a little bit of brinksmanship late in the season possibly but it's also possible that it in some ways it looks a little bit like last year where things are just so tight that you can't really game it until maybe the last game or two of the season because you don't know where anybody's going to be, so you can't figure out where you want to be. Yeah, and it's one of those things where you almost because of the play-in structure, only have so much control over that gamesmanship, right? Like, if you're in the 4-5 spot and you want to drop to 6 to change your playoff matchups, you can do that. But you don't have the option of going to 7 and 8 anymore. You don't want to. Yeah, it's it's too risky. And so, you know, depending on what kind of team you are, you may look at either the Nets or the Bucks and say, we want to be on their side of the bracket versus the other. I think that's a fascinating conversation in itself, especially for a team like Milwaukee. Like, I I don't even know what I... Or, sorry, like Miami. I don't even know what they would choose given their bouts with Milwaukee over the last two playoffs and how they would feel about it. Uh, but they're just, you know, there's games matchup in the sense that you can try really hard to move up, maybe more so than you might at the end of a regular season. You know, extend guys like Jimmy Butler's minutes in game 80 of the regular season. You have that option available to you. But bottoming out to find the right matchup or to drop a, a game or two here or there, I don't think is going to be that viable this season. And especially if the middle of the two conferences stay as crowded as they are where a half game or a one game difference it it might not drop you from four to six it may drop you from four to eight yeah that's a really really good point there's also one of the challenges i'm thinking about this in both conferences and trying to reconcile over the course of the next few weeks is the idea of reconsidering your priors and so for some teams like for cleveland i will say i've already that's already done like the Cavs are just a meaningfully better team than I thought they were and okay that's just that's just the way things are now and I'm super impressed Mobley and we can talk about that if you want 
But for other teams, like the Celtics, like the Pacers, like the Lakers, you won. it's that question of, was I wrong or do we just need more time? Because 20 games is not a huge sample, especially when teams have had guys out like the Celtics have. And then the other kind of factor in that, and the Pacers are such a fun flashpoint for this, is all of that matters. You know, you're trying to estimate and project how good a team actually is and thinking ideally that that is more predictive in some circumstances than what they've done based on context. But we're now two months from the trade deadline and we're getting really close to the point where in certain situations, what I as an analyst feel is the case matters in a very different way because the people who are actually making the decisions may have a different evaluation or may have the same evaluation and are making actual choices on the roster based on that. And that's why the Pacers are such a good example. Yeah, and and they're a fascinating case because it it may not matter what Kevin Pritchard thinks of the core there. And I think there's some great insight uh, this morning, uh, you know, just after we're recording from Jared Weiss and his piece for The Athletic about Miles Turner and Miles Turner's take on what his role is and has been in Indiana and how that might play out in terms of what his trade market could be and whether he's on it and moved sooner rather than later as a result of that. Like, it sounds pretty clear at this point that he's he's, he's explicit about not being satisfied with his role, the things he's asked to do, wanting to take more of an offensive uh, priority in, in kind of the system and the sets they run there, which I, I think that's neither here nor there. And some of the fault with that kind of lies with him and his game and the, the opportunities in which he takes to attack more than anything. But I digress. How that all plays out in the trade market for Indiana is interesting because that's a team that a couple of balls bounce slightly differently. Maybe they're 16 and 11 rather than 11 and 16. If a couple guys hadn't gotten injured at the wrong times, and I mean, they've had somebody out of the lineup, even aside from TJ Warren, who's missed the whole season so far. They've had somebody out almost every game, it seems like. And if, if a couple of those minor injuries don't happen, maybe they're hovering around 500 or better. Maybe they're right there with the Cavs, with the Hawks, with some of these teams that are kind of on the rise after slow starts. But they may not have that opportunity if the personnel isn't willing to be patient with it. And if the front office, you know, again, regardless of what they make of the Sabonis-Turner pairing or whether all these guys can work together or what the fit of this roster means, at some point they're going to have to take stock of kind of the human situation in that locker room and decide if this is a thing that is sustainable and tenable or not. I'm really happy you you went in that direction because I, th- I think I want to go in a couple with the Pacers, but talking about Jared Weiss's piece and Miles Turner, and it's it's a great reminder of the human element involved in all of this. And and Miles Turner, I mean, I've been an advocate of his since, I mean, I had him above Kristaps Porzingis in the draft. Like, I've been an advocate of his since he was at Texas. And I I don't know that even as an as an optimist that I you know he's had that he had that like forty point game I think that was against the Wiz and a couple others and he talked about that talked about that in his conversation with Jared Weiss and but it is a reminder that some let's call it lower usage players are that way and are okay with it and others want the opportunity to blossom and with Turner he has been asked to have this small role in part because they have this extremely talented offensive big man that they're playing with him and. At many times, many of us have lamented or commented on that fact, but it's a reminder that that weighs on him and that he hasn't really had the opportunity to be something else. And it's also important to remember that 
depending on where the next two months go, that enhanced opportunity offensively could be somewhere else, but it could also be in Indiana because what makes their circumstance so unusual, and uh, Seth Partno, Sam Vecini, and I did a piece on this at The Athletic uh, earlier in the week, is Kevin Pritchard can, I mean, the only guy who can't move is Malcolm Brogdon, but there are a bunch of different possibilities here. Some of it, like I I refer to it as a retooling is like, maybe you trade Sabonis or you trade TJ Warren or like Miles Turner. So you, you reshuffle, but you keep, let's say two or three of the five key players intact. Then the other one is a sell-off and you do everything else, or maybe you hold firm and you keep everything together. And each one of those has all of these other dominoes in terms of how it fits that player's role and everything else. And the Pacers have a good coach, Rick Carlisle. He could be prickly, but he's a very good coach. And so I'm fascinated in the Pacers for the idea of how how it changes their team. But then the other part is some of these players, especially Turner in my eyes, but potentially Sabonis as well, what being in a potentially different opportunity does for them and what we think of them as players. I think Turner is definitely the guy to key on, key in on there. Um, and some of that is because, to me, the complications with Turner are not just about Sabonis. They're about having a team with lots of different stakeholders and ball handlers and guys who want to create. This isn't a team with like a definitive 1A, 1B, you know, third option. Like Some nights it's more of a Malcolm Brogdon game. Some nights it's more of a Karis LeVert game. A lot of nights it's a Demonis Sabonis game, and his role has kind of fluctuated throughout the season to try to accommodate for Turner. It hasn't always worked out cleanly. And so, like, having all those guys, and then Chris Duarte comes in as a rookie inexplicably in a Rick Carlisle offense, which is something we rarely ever see, Uh, you know, a rookie given that much responsibility, he leads that team in field goal attempts in a lot of games. And so when you have that many guys who are who are angling for touches, who are looking for their spots, like you really have to be on balance in terms of the stuff you're running and in terms of your mentality as far as there are going to be ebbs and flows to my role. And it, it seems that Turner has kind of gotten a little sick of that, I think understandably in some sense, given where he's been in previous seasons, especially as uh, being really, really being relegated to a spot up guy. I think his role this season has allowed for a little more, but it's one of those things where you kind of have to take those opportunities. And that's really, to me, the Miles Turner experience. And one of the reasons why there's kind of the version of Miles Turner that the Pacers see every night. There's the version of Miles Turner that other fans are pining for, which is really kind of an idea of who he could be. And then clearly there's a version of Miles Turner that he wants to be, which is a more relevant offensive player. I think all three of those versions of Turner are very different because the one that I see on the floor for the Pacers is a guy who struggles, I think, to attack smaller players. He's gotten better at driving from the perimeter, but I think that's still a point of his game that he really needs to improve because his three-point shot is, is good but not great, so people are going to challenge him to take it. And also as a, as a big who is one of the best defensive players in the league as a team defender, but isn't necessarily great at like you know defending in the post against some of the bigger centers out there. So there are all these kind of weird quirks to his game that you may kind of gloss over as you consider, oh, this is a rim protector who can shoot, who could fit my team or fit this team, or we can plug into the trade machine. He's always struck me as a much more complicated fit than that. Yeah, I I think you're totally right. And another complication in the Pacers decision making process, uh, this is something Seth Sam and I talked about a fair amount. I usually use the shorthand of defining success. And so your, your point earlier about how given their struggles in close games, which are completely ridiculous, like the Pacers right now are, are ninth in cleaning the glasses version of net rating. So that filters out garbage time. 
But there's also the question, and this is a Herb Simon one, and to an extent, Kevin Pritchard, but, and we've seen GMs manage owners in this respect, like Sam Presti with OKC and everything else, is, okay, let's, let's say that we're on the better track there, and they're 16 and 10, but their most likely thing is a, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're in the 4-5, but the, the most likely thing is they're out in the first round. And part of what makes the NBA so fascinating is that different decision makers see that place in the league very differently. Like I've brought up Ted Leonsis a lot as somebody who loves that, who's like, okay, we're consistently relevant. Hopefully we can get the fans in the building. And I thought that was a really interesting part of Shams Tarania and Bob Kravitz's piece is the idea that the Pacers aren't doing well in terms of attendance and whether that's affecting things. And so... At first, I was like, well, oh, there's, there's, there could be so much better than they are, and they haven't had TJ Warren and everything like that. But then when I really kind of sat back, I'm like, okay, well, they also don't have a clear path to be one of the four best teams in the Eastern Conference. Not one of the four best records, but like one of the four best teams. And the passage of time isn't going to help them. You know, it's not like they're waiting for some aging giants to fall, and then it's their time. So you could see that world and be like, yeah. Fine, we're good with that. And, uh, you know, like the argument of I'm sure the Phoenix Suns will embolden some teams along that approach. Like, yeah, we're not the best team in the conference, but we're in the mix. And who knows where things are going to go from there. And you never, as long as you're good, it's the healthiest team that's good enough is generally the threshold for who wins a conference. And so maybe they see it that way. But the other one is like, do we really want to spend all this money and also not um, basically just not be building towards another good team? If what we're fighting for is to lose in the first round every year. And I wonder if Herb Simon is starting to feel like, A, that path is a little less viable than he thought it was. And B, maybe he's a little less interested in it. And I fully support either approach. I think that there, there's a reasonable there's a reasonable rationale for either one. But if you don't want, I, I called it the treadmill of pretty good rather than the treadmill of mediocrity because the Pacers are better than that talent-wise. But it is a real challenge to say, this is what we are. Is this good enough for us? Yeah, I love the way you kind of feathered the attendance question into that. Because when you are the Pacers, that's something you have to consider. When, sure. you, are the, when you are the Portland Trailblazers, considering what your future is going to look like with or without Damian Lillard, you have to think about that. And I think the Pacers are uniquely in that space mentally, and, and Herb Simon is too, because... Really, since 2004 with the brawl, their attendance hit like a catastrophic low in the aftermath of that, where they were they were barely filling, I think, on average, like two thirds of their arena. And so in the years that followed that and what's really informed the last couple decades of Pacers basketball is how they can keep people in the building, how they can keep people coming, because it's a very competitive market in terms of the basketball fans you're fighting for in that city have a lot of options available to them. And honestly, they're cool with going to see high school basketball instead of a Pacers game if the Pacers product isn't kind of living up to their expectations and their standards. So if you can keep a playoff team on the floor, you're much more viable financially in that market. And that's even aside from the other kinds of financial complications that come with being in a, in a market that small uh, or a market that limited or your ability to get free agents or anything like that. Like it's just a totally different way of life than some of these other teams have to consider. And so when you're operating in that space, it, it is tough. And, and that's why I think it can be tough to sell like, should we go into the luxury tax to go from the sixth best team in the conference to the fourth? Th- that can be a harder sell in Indiana than other places. I mean, going into the luxury tax at all is a, is a harder sure. sell in Indiana than most places. 
basis. But if you can get into the place where you're fourth and you're having to go in the tax to get into second or first, then it's a different kind of conversation. And that's the Pacers problem right now is, as you're saying, the talent on the floor is better than where they are in the standings. Like their performance overall is better than this, better than being out of even the play in race right now. But they aren't so competitive that they have the means to either have a player make a significant jump to stardom, which is something they just haven't had in the post-Paul George era, really, um, or where they are like incentivized to make the one move that's going to knock them up one more tier. It's just not a viable thing when you're losing all these games in crunch time, and all of a sudden everyone in your franchise is kind of looking around at each other trying to figure out where things are going wrong. And I think that's a natural transition to the other team whose personnel decisions are have been in the crosshairs recently, and that's the Portland Trailblazers. And I think they have the other challenge that is connected with this, which is evaluation and assessment. And so to me, a big part of the Blazers story, I mean, they have Damian Lillard, who is an unbelievable talent, who's been one of the, you know, one of the five to 15 best players in the league over the last few years. And I would say more in the kind of like the lower end of that, but depending, depending on the year. And there was this circumstance where in 2019, they got a really favorable bracket and made it to the conference finals where they then got waxed by a shorthanded Warriors team, but they made it to the conference finals. And I think it fed into an idea and Neil O'Shea is far from the only optimist in in a position of power to say he basically it seems to me like he interpreted what happened that year, even though they'd gotten knocked out in the first round three of the previous four years as this is how good a team we are. And so if we kind of keep things together, make some moves around the margins, that's just how good we're going to be. And then they had some bad injury luck, went 35 and 39 in that in that weird 2019-20 season, and then they had last year. And so what, but the problem is, as the, as the Blazers, the passage of time made certain things a lot thornier. And one of them, and this has been in the, that was in the Woj, in the Woj piece, which may have had some of Neil O'Shea's fingerprints, maybe, just maybe, in it, is that, you know, that Lillard had been maybe pushing for, pushing for trading CJ McCollum or some of the other, st- other possibilities that could have reared or said. But my firm belief beyond the shift that happened in ownership when Paul Allen unfortunately passed away, is that there was a fundamental gap between what the people whose opinions mattered thought the Blazers were and what, in my opinion, they actually were. Yeah, as I'm thinking back on kind of like who the foils were in the playoffs during the uh, the first part of the Warriors run, you know, really from, from 2014 all the way through Kevin Durant's injury and exit, who are the teams in the West that were like the Warriors' real rivals? I mean, are the, are, were the Blazers during that time when, as you said, they made a conference finals? Were they even fourth or fifth on that list? I I, I just don't even see it. Like, the, the Rockets teams that the Warriors bumped up against were just on a totally different level. The Spurs teams with Kawhi Leonard were on a totally different level. The Blazers, again, it was it was some luck. It was good play. It was the right matchups at the right time. And it's easy to talk yourself into what kind of team you think you can be under those circumstances, especially when part of your job as a general manager, when you've built the team, is already talking yourself halfway into those guys. Like, right. You didn't need to sell Neil Olshay on the idea that C.J. McCollum was good, you know? Yeah, that's a fantastic point, and it's even stronger when that front office group drafted that player and saw their development, and they're like, oh, we know how great he is. We're the ones who made that happen. And the difference between, if memory serves, Olshay drafted C.J. but did not draft Lillard, like that's the, the the best player that we took, is a significant factor in that as well. And 
The Blazers, the other kind of inflection inflection point, huge thing transition is with the same person in power going from a team that is basically willing to, even though they're in a they're not in a major media market that is willing to kind of spend like one of those teams if the team is good enough to mm-hmm. a potentially different paradigm when when Paul Allen pass and maybe they're going to get sold. Jody Allen's still all figuring that out. But they're still giving CJ a massive extension. Lillard Lillard's deal was was a no brainer just because he's he's that damn good. But so now the Blazers are in this weird situation where it's like, okay, we're a fine team, and we now have you know we so for if we're talking about it for next year, they have ninety two point six million tied up in Lillard, McCollum, and Norman Powell. Okay, that's an interesting question as the league's fi- you know the league's finally starting to get back financially. So. How you handle that is really is really challenging, and it's been and and when two of their other important players are pending unrestricted free agents who could do anything they want there, and they and also you fire your GM right after you fire your coach and let that GM hire the coach. The whole thing is a little bit crazy. Yeah, the the order of operations with that stuff, it's going to be really tricky, especially with the way Chauncey Billups' tenure there has started. And the fact that he's clearly not getting the response out of the players there that he thought he would, and clearly that Neil Olshay thought he would. Well, and, and that that kind of response, like I mean, Billups has been focusing a lot on effort. They also just don't have good defensive talent. Like even if they no. tried super duper hard, they still wouldn't be a very good defensive team. They just yeah, that's what happens when you're playing small players who aren't particularly good defenders, and you don't have a you don't have a scheme, you don't have versatile enough big men. I mean, I guess you could say other than Nan but he's coming off the bench. That's their intention to do something really different. Like I, I, James Brego got a lot of praise last year, justifiably so for like a lot of, a lot of more in the junkie realm of things, but it did work better than we expected relative to their talent level. I don't even know if Portland has the flexibility to do much of junkie stuff. I mean, Billups has tried it at, at points in the season. And so them being bottom 10 in the league, I mean, 28th is maybe a little bit grisly for it, but they're being 28th is not like stunning for me for the Blazers in defense. No, and I, th- I think the two criteria you laid out are important. Like, it's okay to have guards who are small if those guards are just tenacious defenders. And the three guards that they have that are small, that they're playing all together all at the same time pretty often, I mean, I guess, I guess Norman Powell can kind of get into some matchups sometimes. It depends. Like, he'll, he'll, Well, like, he'll, if, if to me, if, going back to the Raptors, if Norman Powell is, like, your third best defender on their perimeter, you're in a great spot because then he can he can handle those. If they're guys that he can get into and can't beat him in the same way. But if he's your best perimeter defender, it's a challenge. Yes. And that goes to your point about the fact that they can't even junk things up, which leaves them in a place of running very traditional defenses. You know, it's either we're going to go we're going to be aggressive at the, as they have been at the point of attack um, in pick and rolls. We're going to show we're going to trap. We're going to blitz. We're going to do all that stuff or we're going to drop, which they are clearly allergic to doing at this point, given their past history. And I can understand why they would want to move away from that and change, but they don't have the switching options that other teams do. They don't have the kind of like box and one or triangle and two kind of stuff that the Warriors, for example, are doing. And the Warriors are a good counterpoint because, you know, while I would say Steph Curry is a better perimeter defender than Dame or CJ by a, a pretty significant margin, it's not like he's, an, although although I was going to say he's not an all-defensive team member, but I've actually seen the narrative momentum for that starting to take shape, <laughs> so I guess I better be careful. 
but he, you know, he is not one of these guys who is a stopper unto himself. And so the reason that works, the reason they can play smaller, is because they have hyper-intelligent bigs. They have this track record of switching. They have guards like Gary Payton II who can plug in and be small but tenacious. The Blazers just don't have that stuff. And so they don't have either the length to be successful or the disposition to be successful defensively. And that leaves you in a super awkward place schematically where you just don't have that many levers to pull in terms of different things you can do. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And you, uh, you know, and, and some of it, I think it is fair. I mean, a lot of times I tie defensive versatility to the big man and Yusuf Nurkic, you know, he's not going to be able to do a ton of different things out there. But there's also a, you know, an element of this that I think is similar. And it's it's the part of the jazz story that I think got it got thrown on Rudy Gobert. And I think that was really unfair, which is it's hard to be the guy. Yeah, the lack of defensive fertility when your point of attack defenders are so bad that they're just giving up these line drives by the Clippers every single time. And defense it's possible to be you know the equivalent of like a heliocentric defense in the regular season just because teams aren't doing their approach and because there aren't many rosters that can have that many you know like dribble attackers or anything else it's just not the way so you don't have the tactical shifts and you don't have the personnel right but there will be those teams of course in the playoffs and so the idea that that made Rudy Gobert worse it's like no it didn't but it is a limitation but it's also the it's a really interesting question about how to how to kind of rectify that and also the reminder that we talk a lot about how for you know weak links on offense can be a really big challenge and whether that's you know a player who can't or won't shoot or in some cases both or somebody who has these other limitations like they turn the ball over too much or they take bad shots or anything else I'm I'm kind of a mixed bag on how that applies defensively. So I know that defense is harder to quantify and everything else, and there are lots of different ways for a player to be a point of success or a point of failure. But I'm growing I'm growing an appreciation for the idea that defense is an ecosystem and an organism like offense where there are lots of different ways for it to succeed and fail. And I think sometimes the limitations, like if you have multiple limited players at one time, that we don't properly weight how dangerous and potentially catastrophic that could be. I'm totally with you. And I'm glad you brought up the Gobert example here because, look, we need justice for Rudy Gobert out there in terms of what some of the Jazz's playoff uh, failures actually stem from defensively. And uh, most of the time, they're not really his fault. And, uh, you know, I am, I would say, inclined in general to stick up for big men and their place in the modern NBA, especially ones as good as Rudy Gobert, because I think a lot of what troubles the Jazz defensively in those high leverage situations is not just that Donovan Mitchell and, and at this age, Mike Conley, who, you know, it's like just given his size and where he is in his career is not going to be the defender he used to be. Not just that those guys and Bojan Bogdanovich are, you know, losing some of their matchups or getting blown by. Like it's all, it's all about the predictability of what a big is asked, asked to do. And when you have lesser perimeter defenders and especially guys who are prone to just like missing on drives, just like losing their guy where they can get clean lanes to the rim, it makes it almost impossible as a rotating big to you know plug all of those holes at once to do all of those things at the same time when you think about what the like the mental cadence of a big is in the modern nba a lot of it comes down to like how long can i be in the paint and you know how can i clear out after 2.9 seconds how like how do i how do i clear so i can stay here so i can stay relevant so i can stay involved in the play and when you have guys who are liable to get blown by 
at random, inexplicable times. I don't know how you can be expected to do your job when part of your job is not just being in the paint for 2.9 seconds, but understand that you might have to sprint out to the three-point line at basically a moment's notice and deal with the fact that there could be breakdowns coming from any part of the floor. To me, that's the difference between what Rudy Gobert is asked to do and what DeAndre Ayton is asked to do. Yes. You know, when you have Chris Paul and Mikhail Bridges and an invested Devin Booker, who I think has been you know, really made defensive strides over the last season and change, it's just a totally different job. And I think you can see a version of that, too, going on in Chicago, where Nikola Vucevic is not an elite defender, but he's a pretty good positional one, and he has enough pressure and enough predictability going on on the perimeter that he can be a pretty solid interior defensive presence for the Bulls. Yeah, I think that's a really healthy way of thinking about it. And the idea of giving more predictability to bigs is a particularly salient concept that I'd love to I'd love to think about it a little bit more. And it's, it's, it's really interesting to see also, like, I mean, when I watch, I'm going to try to watch Cleveland with that idea as well in terms of like, well, if you have two guys to clean with the messes, how does that change it too? Because of the, when the Mobley, the Mobley Jared elements, Cleveland is one of the, one of the most fascinating teams right now to be in the league, partially because I love, I love it when I'm wrong to kind of figure out why, especially when it's in the positive, when it's like, okay, this team is way better than I thought they would be. And part of that is Evan Mobley has been far better than I anticipated for his rookie year, which is awesome. Super duper exciting. But I want to go back. You just brought up the Suns, and I, uh, when we were talking in the earlier going, I, I was some, that was something I wanted to go back to. Is like you think about okay, well, what's been going on in the league, and I think that those two Suns Warriors games. I'm not saying it's a conference finals preview necessarily or anything else like that, but I agree with you that one of my big takeaways from those two contests was Phoenix has very good personnel to slow down some of what the Warriors want to do. And they have enough options with that personnel, like especially like with the stuff with Mikhail Bridges on Steph Curry, and they have other guys that they can throw in some of those matchups, and they also have good help defenders, that the Suns have a the Suns have a better chance defensively than I than I had kind of thought in the abstract, even though I believe in all of the Suns defenders. It was just seeing it on on the court made me understand better how it's going to work. I mentioned this uh, on group chat, the podcast I do at The Ringer, but one of the things it reminded me of, especially that first game between the two, I got shades of the 2016 Thunder Warriors Western Conference Finals, mm-hmm. where the big, like this was Steven Adams before his knee was giving him a lot of problems, Serge Ibaka was flying around, Kevin Durant, Andre Robertson, like the length that they had on the floor and the versatility of what it allowed them to do defensively. I saw some shades of that in what what DeAndre Ayton was giving them on the perimeter. His ability to switch and stay in front of Steph and be competent in those matchups. Obviously, Jay Crowder is very good at that. Very different kind of defender than someone like Serge Ibaka would be. But his ability to hang on the perimeter is so important. And then, like, Chris Paul is, is one of the all-time compete with guys who are bigger than him, small guards that we've ever seen in the league. And Mikhail Bridges' ability to, I think, start on someone like Steph switch out onto someone else over the course of a possession and then still find ways to disrupt the play as it as it progresses. I mean, there just are not many perimeter guys who can do that, who have the length and anticipation to do that. So I'm with you. I think they could be really disruptive in that matchup. And I would love to see over seven games what guys like Steph and Draymond start to do and start to take away uh, and start to kind of piece, you know, as, as they try to puzzle their way through all that. That's a matchup I would love to see unfold. Well, it's something else that's fun is that the Warriors have been pretty you know, stable personnel-wise over the years. I mean, with Steph and Draymond and Clay, and then the overall system since Kerr got there in 14. 
And oh, some of the players on the Suns, not all of them, and Aiton Bridges especially, some of the players have experience with the Warriors. And so you could you could imagine Chris Paul being like, well, here's what they want to do. Here's what they would do. Jay Crowder, of course, has a lot of experience against the Warriors as well. And so that gives it a little bit of color, a little bit of, a little bit of a different edge because you have these players that understand what the Warriors want to do and and want to and want to get into it. And the Suns also, as you brought up, they have good personnel in terms of like I mean they have a lot of intelligent defenders. Mikhail Bridges is is a real uh, is a real force potentially in that kind of a series. So yeah, I'm I'm extremely excited about the possibility, and also just like okay, how does a seven game series the way that these teams you know the seven game series is all about punches and counter punches and counter counter and everything else like that? What other tools do these teams have? And I also think though that a really important wrinkle is that I think the Warriors can defend the Suns really well. And can Phoenix do a good enough job getting back in transition, staying on it when their offense lulls? And that was a challenge for them against the Bucks at times. Was When, when, when can you handle that? Because they have really good personnel, but they have more dependent players. And you know, you're going to need kind of Paul and you're, you're not going to be able to get Paul going against the Warriors in the same way that he did, let's say, against Denver, because the Warriors' personnel is dramatically different, and it's going to be hard to get him in those spots in mid-range. And very few teams have a better understanding of where Chris Paul wants to be than the Golden State Warriors, because they've seen him in a bunch of different uniforms, but the story is pretty much the same. And I mean that in immense credit to Chris Paul. He's an unbelievable player. And so then it becomes, I think, more gets put on Devin Booker, and Booker can do that, but the Warriors also have some real guys to throw at him. And so that becomes a challenge as well. And the other wrinkle for the Suns, which could be a real challenge against the Warriors, is sort of like the Warriors, they have a couple players on the floor that aren't as adept at punishing mismatches. And so that was, you know, that's something I loved about the Rockets in their best times. You know, and it was Eric Gordon who, okay, you're going to put a a weak defender on Eric Gordon. He's going to put that guy in the damn basket. And this, I don't think Jay Crowder is going to do that. I don't think Mikhail Bridges has some of that in his toolbox, but he's he's more of like taking advantage of a situation rather than taking advantage of a matchup. Yeah. And so the Warriors have guys like that too. You know, like are you if you're going to challenge Juan Toscano Anderson or even uh, Andrew Wiggins settles for some truly bad shots, like are you going to you're going to make those guys beat you? And so I'm really fascinated to have two intelligent, well coached teams face off when they're going to have kind of weak points on both ends that are worth pursuing to some extent. No, I am too. And yet as we as we foreground this conversation in the question of like how open the league is right now and whether uh, these races are as open as, as they seemed or as we thought they might be, this matchup, I mean the the shadow over it is where and how and whether Clay Thompson comes back and what he looks like because if he looks like seventy to eighty percent clay, maybe this maybe even this matchup isn't as close as it seems right now. Well, especially because of what that does to the Warriors rotation. Because yeah. This is it's the same it's the same story in reverse of when you have an injury and it's like oh everybody has to step into larger roles. I brought this up. I think the Brook Lopez injury for the Bucks is massive and I think it makes them a significantly weaker team moving forward. But what Clay does even if as you said he's 60 to 70% of of what he was is it adds another totally capable at times dominant player to Steve Kerr's rotation. And so now if 
Jordan Poole is having a shaky game or, you know, his defensive limitations there or whatever else, he's not going to have to play as much. Or some of these other, you know, flawed guys, or maybe you can use Jordan Poole more of his energy for when Curry is off the floor. You know, he's not a starter and a closer. He does both when he needs to, but he's more of the middle ground gap filler type of player. Or it could be, you know, like, I mean, they're a million guys of the Warriors who, like, if they're healthy, they can really help. But if they're not, then it's a challenge. Like Iguodala, who's now missed, I think, 10 straight games, and Otto Porter and Bielitsa. And so adding another guy who can give you a good 20 to 35 minutes a game makes life so much easier on Steve Kerr. And then you have the possibility with James Wiseman, and you could argue to an extent Kaminga and Moses Moody, where... Wiseman's a little more complicated, but the idea that Wiseman is not, I don't think, a better basketball player right now than Kevon Looney. Looney's defense is an underappreciated part of why the Warriors have been so good to start this year, but Wiseman is a whole lot more capable offensively. You know, like there are all these times that the Warriors kind of like autopilot throw these passes to the big and think, oh, he can do something with it, and Kevon Looney just cannot. But Wiseman, he's he's not quite at the level of some of the other guys that they've had in that spot. But if all you have to do is catch an easy pass and dunk it, he can do that in a way that Looney doesn't right now. Yeah, I mean, Looney really is getting by kind of by the skin of his teeth, I think, offensively in a lot of these matchups in terms of is he being exploited enough to tilt the balance of what's happening here or, or what's going on. And offensive rebounding is a huge part of how he's been able to stay on the floor as well. That combination of what he's giving you defensively, especially against bigs, and uh, his ability to contribute on the offensive glass, I think, have been really important. But I, I am curious to see if any of those younger guys are able to contribute in a meaningful way. Like I just have visions of a Jonathan Kuminga 14-minute kind of meaningful playoff burst in one of these kind of games that's up for grabs. Like I think that kind of thing could be on the table. Wiseman, we just have to wait and see in terms of where he's going to be, um, not just physically, but in terms of his comfort level in adapting to, you know, if, if he's picking up where he left off, that's not a place that's good enough to help the Warriors this season. So he kind of has to be further along in terms of his processing of the game uh, by the end of the season if he's going to play any part in it at all. But yeah, just the fact that as, as we talked about what they could do to the rotation to have Clay back involved, it just, you know, if we, if we think about defense as this hive mind kind of thing that has to happen where all the players are synergized and locked in and connected, it's just going to do a different thing to that hive mind to have Clay Thompson on the weak side instead of Damian Lee. You know, it's just going to, it's going to distract from every piece of that rotational chain in a way that these other guys can't. And that's even knowing that he's injured, knowing that he can't drive by. Like, you're just not going to leave Clay Thompson open, injured or not. Yeah, that's a phenomenal point. Something I like to do in this stretch, uh, like the stretch of the season, is just ask, you know, you, you, you watch a lot of everything. What teams, what players, what situations are you most interested in keeping an eye on and seeing what develops over the next two weeks and next month or so? We brought up Cleveland a little bit earlier in terms of the Jared Allen, Evan Mobley piece of that. I've been watching them a lot and, and really just curious about what's going on there, about their defensive success, especially apart from those guys. Yeah. So one thing that has caught my eye is like the the varied situations in which J.B. Bickerstaff has been willing to throw Lowry Markkinen into the fire. Uh, because he is a defender who, especially with this kind of three big alignment that they play, that they start with and play a lot of the time, frankly. Yep. You would expect Lowry to be a guy who's kind of like hidden. And yet when they played Utah, he was guarding Donovan Mitchell. Like this is kind of the, the way in which they have chosen to use him is to put him into some pretty high leverage matchups and to try to use his length as much as possible. Like they are not running away or shying away 
from using that as an asset defensively. And it, you know, the results are kind of mixed and it depends on who he's guarding, but I kind of like that option for, for players like him. And again, there are ways in which that can be attacked and exploited and who knows what it would even mean in a playoff type setting. But for a regular season where Donovan Mitchell is rolling into Cleveland for, you know, the third game in five or six nights and, you know, he knows the scouting report, he knows the personnel, but he might not be prepared to be guarded by Lowry Markkinen. Maybe it can throw enough of a wrench into things to buy you some time buy you some possessions to tilt a couple of things in your favor while the rest of your defense cleans up the rest you know yeah Cleveland is is definitely high on my list and then for me there are three other teams that I'm having trouble figuring out and also I think that the next stretch of time could be really clarifying both inter- you know like so just it could end up being useful for what we already know the first one of those for me is the Dallas Mavericks yep and yep. What is going on with Luca? Is it is you know is it just the the kid quote about how this is a jump shooting team that isn't hitting jump shots? And to like the Reggie Bullock extent, and Luca, that's true. But then some of the other shooters are worse, and I want to get a sense of their defense and where everything is. And now that Porzingis is getting closer, and Luca, hopefully over the next couple of weeks, will get closer to feeling like himself again. What in the world's going on there is going to be a big one for me. Then. Well, if, if we can sure. zero in on the Mavericks part real quick, because I think that's a team that has a very interesting dialogue around it right now. It seems like just from following from afar, there's a lot of angst in the Mavericks fan base around that team and where they are and some of the ups and downs. And I think understandably so. But in the efforts, both on the media side and on the fan side to make sense of who the Mavs are, there's just a lot of oversimplification going on, which, as you mentioned, there's kind of a lot of different storylines with them and a lot of different flaws that are colliding at once. And I think we're getting to the part in the season where it's like we try to have one definitive reason why this team is underperforming, one definitive reason why this team is better than we expected. And I think those things can be true. Sometimes it really is that clean. There's not really one theme with the Mavericks. Like they've been kind of injured. As you mentioned, they're missing a lot of open jumpers, especially for pretty good shooters. There's the Luka conditioning thing. There's the Jason Kidd of it all where, you know, just the way some of the games are managed, especially in the fourth quarters, we've seen their offense kind of fall apart there's installing new systems there's just a lot going on there that's bumping into each other and colliding in a way that has made that team pretty messy in terms of its execution um even as i think they're pretty talented i think they're pretty successful in terms of some of the situations they can put opposing teams in it's just they like they haven't put all that stuff all together yet at all right and so that reconciling that is a is a real challenge and something that i want to keep a close eye on over the next couple weeks then the two other teams that we, I mean, if you're interested, we can talk about it. One of them for me is Boston, but Boston just needs to have their guys back for me to be there. You know, Jalen Brown has missed a couple of stretches and well, I, I, Robert Williams is, is a little bit of a different story, but I want to kind of figure out what in the world's going on there. I'll probably do a pod on that at some point, like I did with the Pacers with Caitlin Cooper, which I'm really happy I did then because we don't know what they're going to look like now. <laughs> and then the other one is the Lakers and Nate and I have spent a fair amount of time kind of talking about what we think is wrong with them. And for me, one of the basics is if their star players were just having better seasons, this would look a lot better for them. But we, we aren't quite in Pacers land yet, but I think we're getting closer to the concept of, well, if they think something is wrong, and by they, I mean LeBron, Palenka, the Bus family to some extent, what are they going to do about it? Because... I so my thought on this, we got asked a question about basically like what are the chances Russell Westbrook gets traded in season. I think it's extremely low. 
because to me, the people who matter think that Russ wasn't the problem and isn't the problem. And I think to some extent that's correct. I mean, yes, Westbrook is having a worse season than I hoped, but also like Anthony Davis is having a way worse season offensively than I hoped, and LeBron has been unavailable and everything else. Yeah. So does that mean, are they are they just thinking, okay, well, we've been hurt, it's been really disjointed, it's been weird, or does this fall on Frank Vogel? What does firing the coach on a LeBron James team really actually mean? I mean, it happened once before, and they won the championship that year, so in that <laughs> year, but Ty Lu. Ty Lue ended up becoming this phenomenal coach. Like, I mean, I think that yeah. his job with the Clippers has been has been kind of under the radar because they're just like a 500 team, but I think he's done a really good job. And not exactly plug-and-play assistant coach example. You know, Ty Lue is definitely an exceptional case. I would argue, I would agree. And so it's... I, I want to try to figure I want to try to figure them out, but I also want their players to be closer to 100. percent And so this this stretch kind of you know we're 25 35 games in. This is where you kind of get to the point where whether it's fair or not, we have a base understanding of what a team is. And I think those are the ones where to me, either because I don't understand where they've been or because I think there's some anomaly within the sample, where I think they could be something fundamentally different. And those are the mo- to me the most interesting situations where I was like, yeah, the Utah Jazz are a very good team. That that, that that's exactly what they are. Or like the Bucks, where it's like, yeah, they had these struggles at the beginning of the season. They're doing that. And then the other one will, of course, be the Pelicans once Zion gets back. But we don't know when that's going to be. It's probably not going to be super duper soon. So I'll wait for that until it comes. I'll say just one note on on both of those teams. First on the Celtics, I thought it was, there was a very interesting kind of aside in the Jared Weiss piece on Miles Turner about. Turner's expectation that he was going to be dealt to the Celtics in the failed Gordon Hayward thing, Um, especially as he is saying he wants more of an offensive role, and then he's saying he wants to play with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart, and it makes me wonder how much Boston Celtics basketball Miles Turner has been watching uh, in terms of what the other players on that team are allowed to do and what playing with those guys really means, because I'm not sure it would be a meaningfully different situation other than, you know, basically playing the five full-time. I guess that would be a meaningful change potentially. Uh, but it's not like Rob Williams is out there just, you know, lighting the league on fire with his, uh, you know, the opportunity he's been given to be creative. So I thought that was kind of an interesting um, snapshot into Turner's mentality and, and what some other teams think of the Celtics versus maybe where they are more realistically. And as for the Lakers, you mentioned that the the other players on that team and the Stars especially have, uh, you know, really, I think, excused a lot of Westbrook's play and, and, and some, of, some of the downswings in his play and said that he hasn't been the problem there and he hasn't... Uh, been the reason for their struggles i do wonder if that's the thing that they think or if that's the thing that they say yeah Um, that's an interesting point i I think behind closed doors the russell westbrook experience is often very different than what people say at press conferences uh and and that's again that's not even to put everything on his shoulders because as you mentioned it really it really comes down to how well is anthony davis playing on a nightly basis uh is the spacing there for this particular night is this a defense that can really exploit what they do um is this a is this a night where the lakers are going to get back in transition or not um an oh, interesting boy. variable this season but uh but yeah like it, it really would be a totally different thing if, if anthony davis was having a nikola Jokic level season or even even 15 percent less than that or even uh, like a second second team all nba season like he sure. i mean th- just just like being a very uh, being a very good version of himself not a superlative one would be huge yeah, for them absolutely so 
yeah, another team where there's just so many things that are – it's not even that they're all wrong. It's just that they're kind of off at the same time. And the way that those kind of off things play off of each other uh, has really submarined a lot of their efforts. But they're starting to figure it out. They're starting to get healthier. You know, who who knew having LeBron James back would make your team significantly better? So we'll <laughs> see how they, uh, how they fare over these next couple weeks. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Pleasure as always. This was fun, Danny. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Rob Mahoney for taking the time to come on. You can check out his work at The Ringer, including the group chat podcast. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. Love having him on and really enjoyed the conversation. He and I had, we had a little bit of a conversation yesterday and then today about what do we want to talk about? And I think it flowed, ended up flowing really well. And this is a really interesting time of the year, still figuring a lot of it out and I like that. I like the assessing, the evaluation, reconsidering priors part of the season. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode, really whatever podcast player you use, Spotify, Apple, whatever. Really do appreciate it. And then you can help other people find the show. So that could be leaving a rating, leaving a review in your podcast player. That could be word of mouth saying, hey, this episode, this podcast in general, people really like it. All of those things help us out. You can also check out my other work, new piece at The Athletic with Seth Partnow and Sam Vecini talking about the Pacers after the reporting earlier in the week at The Athletics. That was a lot of fun. Dunked on Prime, still going strong. And then we're doing the NBA cast. And of course, the free episode of Dunked on. We're doing the NBA cast. Had a schedule change, actually. We're going to be doing Buck Celtics, which is pretty awesome, this coming Monday. It's a 7.30 Eastern, 4.30 Pacific start. You can join us there. And I think that's about it. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. Twitter's too ephemeral, and I have a separate place in my inbox that all of those go if they go to that email address, so I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. lifestyle depends on quality sleep and sleep number is here to help you sleep more efficiently sleep efficiency is the amount of restful sleep you have at night and is a key part of your overall health here are some tips to help you get the most efficient sleep possible reduce caffeine consumption before noon and limit late night alcohol get regular exercise during the day which helps you feel tired in the evening and keep track of your sleep health with data from your sleep number 360 smart bed sleepers who routinely use their sleep number 360 smart bed features get almost 100 hours more proven quality sleep per year With that much extra energy, you could get more quality family time, volunteer at a meaningful charity, or exercise, meditate, and reconnect with nature. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep, which starts with Sleep Number adjustability. It's time for Sleep Number's ultimate sleep number event. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed, plus special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com slash podcast one for details. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep the facility running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you, Raymond in Buffalo and Maria in Miami, Jules in Minneapolis and Stan in central Indiana. 
Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with experienced branch staff at over 250 locations so you get the product you're looking for. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.